Today's guest is Dr. Freddie Hebert. We'll talk about her newly published book about vocabulary instruction, her work around text complexity, and her site, textproject.org, how to ensure self-selected reading time is worth the time, and more. Later, I'm joined by my colleagues Macy Kerbs, Rosie Morantonio, and Leah Leibowitz for a conversation about practical takeaways. This is the To the Classroom podcast, and I'm your host, Jennifer Saravallo. Thank you so much for being with me today, Freddie. It's my pleasure. So I want to start with your incredible website, textproject.org, because I want to make sure everybody knows about it. There's so much great stuff there. For teachers who are not yet familiar with it, can you give us a quick overview of what they can find there? Well, the first thing I'd underscore is that everything on the website is available for free download. I think there must be well over 400 texts for teachers to use. And what I have done is basically written prototypical kinds of texts that I hope can influence publishers and make a difference in terms of the kinds of things that kids can read. So there are texts for uh, students from beginning reading uh, all the way up through middle school, high school. We've just added a new program called Topic Reads, uh, which is about a couple hundred texts for kids in middle grades. I think we're starting to hear a lot from middle grade teachers about kids who not necessarily can't read, but won't read or don't have enough stamina to stay the course for a text. And then the other major resource on the website are vocabulary lessons. So, you know, we read words, words mean things, and expanding your meaning, your vocabulary is really what we do as teachers of English language arts whether that vocabulary is thematic or it's um, in a literary text. So there are lots of forms of um, vocabulary lessons. And again, I underscore that all of those are for free download. It's an incredible resource. I recommend that everybody check it out. And there's also your professional texts, entire books that you can read for professional development. It's just incredible. So thank you for putting that together. Um And something else that's unique about it is that you have a leveling system that you call TEXT, which stands for Text Elements by Task. I think some people might be familiar with quantitative leveling systems like Lexile or qualitative leveling systems like the um, FMP Text Level Gradient, which uses the letters. Um, What about yours? Can you tell us a little bit about it and um, why you developed it? What I'm interested in is not just giving a book a single score, whether it be qualitative or quantitative. So I don't want to just say that, um, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is an M or it's 600 Lexiles. To me, that's not very useful. What I want to know as a teacher is how, what what are the kinds of words that kids are going to need to be able to know to be proficient with that, with the book. So my text analyzer, you can really use a lot of different things about it. So it's like not a single formula. So what what I have is a text analyzer that basically will give you the distribution of at least 12 to 15 features of a text. 
So for example, if I were going to do a chapter of um, To Kill a Mockingbird, I could tell you the percentage of words in the text that uh, come from the most common words. And then I could tell you which words are um, very rare and how often those rare words occur, how long they are. I can tell you about whether they are part of uh, rich morphological families or whether it has um, an orthographic structure that might be difficult for kids. It's so, um, so, so important that, yeah, that we're not boiling down a text to a letter or a number because that doesn't really tell us what sorts of things to support kids with, what to unpack for them, how to help them through that text, what kinds of words to be highlighting, those kinds of things. So I think it's so valuable to have these these qualities or features of text really clear. There's a lot of conversation now about what text to use with beginning readers in particular. You know, pattern texts have been really common for a long time. And now there's a lot more people talking about decodable texts and making sure that beginning readers have texts that really set them up to be successful as they're applying their phonics knowledge or their newly formed phonics knowledge to um, to, to different situations as they're reading. Um, I'm just wondering what you think about ways that people might use different text types in the classroom. Well, this is, um, how much time do you have? I know. I asked, I basically come up with questions that each one could be its own podcast episode. So that's yeah. we Well, are. this topic, I think this is the most critical topic that teachers are facing right now. So when you think about text for students who are beginning or students who aren't highly automatic in grades beyond, you know, the primary grades, the thing that we have to keep remembering is that English is a quasi, has a quasi-regular orthography. What that means is that an English word always uses the 26 letters of our alphabet, but the relationships between the letters and the sounds can vary a lot, especially for vowels. So in Ed Fry's analysis, um, in an article in Journal of Literacy Behavior, I think it was 2004, he identified 106 different ways in which um, graphemes and phonemes can be partnered for vowels. That's a lot. The real question is like, how many of those are very rare? And a significant portion of those are, and which ones are the most consistent and common? Now, one of the difficulties we really have, because English is unlike almost every other language, a language that has two distinct linguistic forms, that means that um, German initially, and then French is added on top during um, um, the Norman invasion. So the uh, English court speaks French for a long time. So we've got a lot of um, words that we use in academic language that have a French origin. And those systems have um, different orthographic patterns. And so we've got a lot of words in our most frequent words, which come from German, that are, um, you know, the consonants are pretty consistent, except for the word the. You know, the TH in the is, is the sound that is 
less frequent for the TH. So the TH in that is the more common sound. But um, we've got all these words with irregular patterns. So you've got a system that, yes, is an orthographic system representing two different language sources. And you've got a bunch of words that don't always fit the pattern. So to become proficient at that, yes, I mean, there's it's unequivocal that you need consistency. You need to be introduced to this system of orthographic relationships. But the expectation that it's perfect is problematic. So kids really need from the get-go to have something called a set for variability. They have to be ready for the fact that when you see the E in the, it's not going to be the same as when you see the E in B-E, B, or me, or he. So um, is there one particular kind of text? I mean, there's, there's the belief that decodable texts can be created that match perfectly kids' knowledge. Well, I haven't seen them yet, but that doesn't mean that you don't need text with consistency. Okay? So what I've worked on, and for example, the beginning reads a text project, support kids in reading books where there are words that are the most common and consistent in terms of vowel patterns. So that's pretty important. But it's hard to write anything connected text without having some words yeah. that don't fit the pattern. So the idea that there's a perfect kind of text and those can be mandated um, is a real problem. So in a recent um, analysis of meta-analysis that um, my colleagues and I have done, uh, we actually have found that in interventions in beginning reading, studies where they use both decodable and level texts actually had higher effect sizes than either treatment by itself. Mm. Now, what I really recommend for, for teachers to do um, in the interventions that I've worked in, what we've done is take an existing text that have Interesting information, because another big issue, right, yeah. in learning to read is that knowledge is so central. Absolutely, yep. So what I talk about is resorting text. And in um, the studies that I've done, the interventions, and Linnea Erie, um, who was the architect of the phonics uh, section of the um, National Reading Panel, has, has done the same thing. What we've done is we've taken a series of books, and we've actually resorted the text so that kids see a critical mass of consistency in certain kinds of words. I mean, there's so much we don't know. Like in the current decodable model, the, feel, the, the view is that it's good to see lots and lots and lots of different exemplars of a pattern. Well, I don't think that that's the way most kids um, actually learn. I think it helps to have, you know, if there's a particular word that means something to you and you see that word a bunch of times in text and then you see some of its mates, that that's a really 
um, good system to take. So that's why I talk about resorting. And I think that that's, um, you know, where there's some shared knowledge. So if you have a whole bunch of books on plants, you're going to see some of the same words over and over again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you might see seeds and pine cones and so on. And they're not just going to appear in one book, which is really good because one of the problems with pattern books is that you're memorizing the pattern. Right. You're not attending as much to the words. Right. So a knowledge-based set of books, and that's what the beginning reads at Text Project are. Mm-hmm. Topic reads are like that. Um, you know, you're not only um, helping kids see some words repeatedly in different contexts, and research also lets us know that that's important to see a word in different contexts because, you know, a lot of words also have a lot of different meanings, right? Mm-hmm. There are very few words that have a single meaning, and most of those are pretty rare words. That was really helpful explanation. One of the um, perspectives that's really influenced me is Seidenberg, who has been, uh, whose work has been raised a lot in the last um, six or seven years. Mm-hmm talks about orthographic knowledge being a product of having encountered a lot of print. Mm -hmm. So I personally think you have to, from the get-go, start applying what you're being taught in text. David Scher, um, an Israeli researcher, talks about the self-teaching hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So at what point do kids actually start making that extension? Our curriculum in American schools right now assumes that you go through each of these patterns and each of these patterns is equally important. They're not. Mm-hmm. You know, and it may well be, we don't know this actually in, in research. Um, I actually posted 12 questions that I have for scientists about, um, you know, some of these specifics, like how many patterns do kids need to see before most of them start generalizing? And keep remembering for kids who have had lots of reading experiences at home, they've been processing the data for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, so from Seidenberg's point of view, it's a statistical learning issue. Okay, So what you see you know, over time influences what it is that you're learning. Mm-hmm. And just somebody telling you a pattern, I mean, that can be helpful to spell it. You know, to see a bunch of words that share that pattern. But eventually, you actually have to see some text where you apply it. And, you know, what's the best kind of of text to do that? I happen to believe it's text where you have some of the most consistent and common patterns, but you're always going to have, you know, some irregular words that where the consonants work, it's the vowels that don't typically work, right? I mean, I'd rather have the discussion of how much text than exactly what kind of text. Or sometimes what happens is I think there's a lot of attention paid toward the explicit teaching of phonics patterns. And what I'm seeing now in 2022, 2023 is there seems to be um, a call to remove independent reading from the literacy block, that independent reading is not worth the time, that more needs to be teacher-directed. And I know you've written a lot about this for more than a decade. Um, And I'm wondering about your perspective on that, going back to what you're saying. It's not just what texts, but how much texts. And 
if we're not giving kids time to read quantities of text in the classroom, when are they getting that time? Well, you've got to read a lot. You've got to do a lot of something to get good at it. So I have to do a lot of German reading to get good at it. I have to do a lot of Pilates to get good at Pilates, you know, which just always amazes me that in some of these programs now, they give the lowest readers less text. You can't teach kids to read if they don't do it. I think little guys can have really hard time picking appropriate text for themselves. You know, I think of um, Tanya Wright and Gina Cervetti's study where they, you know, gave <clears throat> kids um, just a ton of books on birds. Okay, and you start getting good at birds versus getting just a whole bunch of science books that were on all different topics. And it turns out you actually, you know, start becoming ex expert on something. I want to give the kids some choice of where their expertise can be. And I'm not going to just say you have to go into that little bin because I, I personally don't know how those little bins, the books in those bins have gotten there, usually by being assigned a single letter, um, which I, I never can see how you can do that. But that's for a whole nother podcast. Um, but I would prefer to have some support for the kids whose reading experiences occur largely in school. So that I, as a teacher, have a model for where I'm supporting the kids in finding the books that are appropriate for them. You know, so I'm just saying, to me, self-selected reading is possibly the most sophisticated aspect of reading that you have to develop. And it isn't just like, go and find a book. So yes to it, but with some parameters and supports from the teacher, whether that's curating select texts that have something in common from a topic perspective, maybe offering kids support in the form of small group instruction or conferences to teach them what to be doing or how to be selecting texts. Are there any other parameters or supports that you feel like research has shown help this self-selected reading time, independent reading time, silent reading time, whatever you're calling it, to be more worth the time? Well, there has to be something that comes out of it. And I don't mean a book report. Mm -hmm. And I remember having written about this <laughs> at some different points in my career and I'm happy to work, if there's somebody who's listening to this that wants to work on a project with me to kind of actually test out some of the ideas. But I know that Jay Samuels um, was really upset with the some of the conclusions or the interpretations. He was on the National Reading Panel about independent reading. And he did a fair amount of work in, on, on you know tracking what it was that was highly effective. And it isn't just saying to kids, hey, you got 10 minutes, do anything you want. Right. Because when I've been in classrooms, I've seen the kids who are most in need of using that time just repeatedly going and getting another book or, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think there has to, I, I want to invite kids into this culture where you're seeing what books can do for you. And, you know, I, I want to like have some books available to say, 
you know, we're going to be studying about Egypt um, this next quarter. And here are books, if you, you know, for take home or for independent reading that can help you become an expert on an aspect of Egyptian culture. Mm-hmm. Now, all of you aren't going to want to do exactly that. I mean, when I worked with um, a digital publisher on, um, you know, on increasing independent reading, we actually were giving kids, you know, like here out of a selection of 10 articles, you, you need to read three of them or four of them. Sometimes what I've also done is a little card, you know, like here are topics. I want you to try out all the topics and then you decide which one you really want to become an expert on. You know, so I think that there are some ways to do it. I don't know. And here, Jen, you might have a much better uh, notion of the research than I do, but I don't know who's really, um, you know, categorized or summarized some of these strategies. To me, self-selected reading, I hang out with other readers and, and we have places we go to, to find the next book, you know, and that has to be taught. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's shift gears because I'd love to talk about your new book called Teaching Words and How They Work, which for anyone who's looking for a really super practical, use it right away book for supporting vocabulary development, um, I highly recommend it. One of the things I love about it is the framing. I love how you frame the idea that change doesn't need to happen by throwing everything out and completely replacing it with something new. You talk about this idea of small changes and that there's a trap of um, this unattainable goal, that we want to do these big sweeping reforms, but oftentimes what's most helpful are the small changes. Um, I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about that concept because it shows up again and again in every chapter. Well, the ideas of small changes, or as um, B.J. Fogg talks about, Um, He's a researcher at Stanford. He talks about tiny habits. Um, So in my life as a writer and as a speaker and as a human being, as a friend, um, as a person, I um, really believe in, in looking at what's the smallest thing I can do to start something in place. I mean, sometimes I'll look at... you know, a paper I want to write, and it just seems so overwhelming. So the question is, what's the smallest thing I could do that would get me started? And as a teacher, I mean, teaching is so complex, you know, or as a student, I want, I mean, I want kids to be thinking this way, you know, as, as a kid, you know, what's the smallest thing I could do to get to be a little bit of a better reader. Some of it is really having to be clear about what your goals are and your vision, right? Absolutely. And when it comes to learning words, which is the focus of this book, one of the messages is that when you're selecting words to teach children, you should be really economical, right? It's if you you can't possibly teach them every single word individually, you have to teach words with purpose that connect to other things that have a root that's similar that has some kind of morphological connection to other words so you're 
again, a small change that's going to bring about a big difference. Let's talk about word selection. So what are some of what's some of your advice that you share in the book? Well, if I could see put in place a small change that actually is a very big idea. And that would be for teachers and kids to think about the fact that there are systems for how semantics, orthography, and morphology work. We've treated vocabulary as kind of this ad hoc kind of thing. It's like each word is an island or something. And the thing about vocabulary is that words are connected in various systems. So our vocabulary has some systems. You know, there's the orthographic system. There's a morphological system. There are also semantic systems, right? So words, you know, don't just, they just don't happen on their own. But there are likely two to three words kids haven't encountered before in every hundred words they read. Now, if you act like those words all need to be taught, and that it's a serendipitous process what they are, that's going to be a problem. Well, it turns out genre influences how the words act. Okay, so in stories, narrative writers think very differently than people who are informational writers. So a narrative writer is really intent not to keep repeating the same verb over and over again. I mean, some of us learned to read with Dick and Jane, and they had kind of um, obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, where they kept repeating the same thing all the time. You know, they would jump, 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 you know, jump, Jane, jump, Sally, that kind of thing. Well, that's not literature. So what a good narrative writer has are certain words to create motion of characters, motion of events, um, the traits, and they don't keep repeating those words over and over again, which means that when you get to a story, you need to anticipate. This is kind of one of these systems. When I'm reading a story, I have to Variety. anticipate that there are going to be a lot of different ways in which the writer is helping me understand this character. And an informational text, in fact, you know, a mathematician isn't running to a thesaurus to find a, a, a substitute for the word equation. That doesn't mean that's better if you keep repeating equation. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying it's a different purpose. So kids need to understand some of these expectations. And we also need to underscore, and this is really one of the things that underlies the work, the text, text project, and also the vocabulary activities, is that, you know, about 90% of the words we read as adults come from a group of about 2,500 hmm. word families. And a word family is, you know, like help, helper, helpful, helpless, helpmate. Those words actually they matter a lot. So if you're not very automatic with some of those, and keep remembering the more common the word, the more likelihood it has multiple meanings, right? So that's another principle of language is the principle of polysemy, many meanings. And the more, um, you know, a word hangs out, the more different meanings it gets. So 
I is that was that answering your question? I mean, what I'm basically saying is this is I think it's a little little thing, but it's a fundamental shift. Yeah, it's in huge both in helping to advise teachers with selecting words that they can connect to other words so that one word they learned actually opens a door to a whole group of words and thinking in that way, right? It just makes things right. more efficient and streamlined and everybody always needs to be thinking. We never have enough time in the classroom. We need to be always more efficient and streamlined. But it's also thinking about cluing kids in kids into this. And so when they encounter, you know, the teacher's not always going to be there to introduce a word meaning to them. They're going to come across words they don't know, like you said, and helping them to understand, hey, if you know some words that have some um, similar, something similar about them, that could help unlock what this word meaning is. What are other strategies that can help kids when they're by themselves and the teacher's not there to teach the meaning of the word to them? What are other things you want to let them know or strategies to use or ways to be thinking about approaching these words to be able to understand their meaning? Well, from my perspective, some of the things that I've been talking about, I think once kids are at, le at least by third grade, we need to actually have taught them some things about the linguistic system. In every story you see, there are going to be a ton more words than I can ever teach you. So I'm not going to teach you each of the words here. What I'm saying is this particular story, the context matters an incredible amount. Okay. And what this author is going to do is give you a lot of different words to describe the setting. Be on the lookout for that. Now, I'm going to start a semantic map up here with some of the keywords. So the strategy that I probably overuse, but if you go to the um, vocabulary exercises at, at um, Text Project, they're all around semantic maps. I can't teach you all the words in this story, but I can teach you how to look for them. And oh, and by the way, did I tell you guys that about 90 to 92% of the words in this story, you already know? Because we've gotten good at that. Okay, so that means together with your knowledge of orthography and morphology and using the context of the story, you're going to be able to figure out those new words. You use orthography and morphology in the context mm -hmm. of text to make sense of it. Thank you, Freddie. I just want to say thank you so much for for joining me for the, for your time. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground and I had even more I was hoping to talk to you about, so we might need to uh, schedule a follow-up, but I really appreciate all your scholarship and all your work across all these different areas of reading. Um, and I do encourage everybody to check out your new book as well as textproject.org for even more resources. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me and for the work you do. Thank really you. appreciate it. I'm going to now chat with Macy and Rosie and Leah. Rosie, I'd love to hear what you think first um, as a first grade teacher. What are some of the what are some of the first things you're thinking about? Um, I'm always wondering about, um, again, like I looked at the texts and how those texts could be used in my classroom because I use a combination of decodables and level texts. Um, so it was nice to hear from the meta-analyses that that's like a way to go. I felt good about that because I can think of certain students in my class where I'm like, oh, we've done this. 
but maybe we have it. There just hasn't been that practice um, that they need. And I think that's one of the things I find that's missing from the um, some of the phonics programs we work at is that there's like an explicit instruction, but the connection into text and the time for kids to have that practice isn't there. Um, so that's just something I'm constantly trying to find time to add more of. And I think the big thing is that we shouldn't just spend like one week on this chunk or one week on this, you know, pattern, but really looking at like, which are the more high frequency words in our language and word families in our language. So yeah, those are some of the things I'm already. Do you have time for morphology instruction oh. in first grade? I no, can, right? I'm try- that's the other thing. I'm always like, okay, now what, where can I fit this in? Um, I, I, I'm not sure yet. Like I, it, it's, it seems so important. So I'm thinking of like, where can we embed it and maybe tweaking some of these like so-called like scripted phonics lessons and try to embed more of this in, but I don't know. I don't know. It's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. Macy, what are you thinking? So I was thinking about just how complex the language is. Like she was speaking about like the linguistic side of it. And I was taking like so many notes because I was learning so much as she was speaking just about the English language. Um, And I was thinking about how much our kids don't know in the classroom about how complex it is, but we expect it to feel really easy. If everyone's learning the same lesson at the same time, certain kids probably know it already. Others are having a harder time grasping it. And I think, Rosie, about your classroom and just how hard it is to fit all of the different things in. And sometimes it has to be whole class, but just the practical, what does a teacher do knowing that you've got kids with a variety of different experiences, whether it's with vocabulary knowledge or with knowledge of the orthographic system and phonics knowledge, there's a range and you're trying to get them all to progress and to at least meet, you know, end of your benchmark. But they're, if we're moving them all along at the same pace, some kids are going to feel like this is not for me. This is way too hard. And yes, acknowledging it. Yes, this is hard. Language is complex. English especially. Yes. But that's also, there also needs to be a place where the instruction is meeting him where he is, right? So that he feels successful. Yeah. And I kind of wonder, I kind of wonder about like what's happening to our teachers instead of from our teachers. So like Rosie, you're handed all of these curriculums to balance as a first grade teacher within one day. And you also have the pressure from parents and other people in your school to meet the individual child. So just that load itself on a teacher to figure out now I need to know who this child is and how to scale back or scale up or fit it in at this different time. That's a lot of ask on our teachers. And so I think it's nice that what Freddie brought into the conversation is that slow is better. Like if we go slow and focus on what really, really matters and what's going to have the biggest bang for your buck, your buck, the small changes, that will have the biggest impact. And I hope that listeners, um, whether they're administrators or curriculum developers or classroom teachers, feel that um, it's okay to slow down in the race instead of you know trying to get it all in. It kind of makes me think about your goal setting conference structure, Jen, when she was talking about accountability, um, not the book report, but really saying like, here's why I'm choosing a text and what I'm reading. And let me have this authentic experience with text and peers around text. 
I was thinking about that goal setting conference because how often do we walk into classrooms where teachers are using your strategies book beautifully and they're teaching these small groups and they're teaching strategy groups and kids are really doing the work, but not always transferring it independently. And I think that goal setting conference where we're sitting down and having a conversation with a kid about their reading life or their writing life and helping them authentically choose goals based on where they see themselves as a reader, um, that will allow us to get further in the process. And then we can make decisions about, you know, maybe this is the time for just vocabulary if that's their specific goal. But when she was talking about how do we hold them accountable, I said, I was thinking, man, I think that's Jen's structure. Conferences. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. You start off with a, yeah, you start off setting goals so that your independent reading time is purposeful and focused. So the teacher knows you know, what am I trying to teach and what accountability looks like and the bringing of accountability to that self-selected reading time to make it more meaningful and more purposeful and more impactful for kids, I think is really important. I think with that, we almost have to do like a classroom book, like audit of our text, um, because she talked a lot about it not being one type of text, but having a lot of variety and being really intentional. Yeah. And then how can those you know, more purposeful collections of books fuel the intention behind independent reading and the success of it. And even the idea that you should be encountering, um, what percentage did you say? About 8% of the words should be words you are going to need to work to try to figure out what they mean. Um, It also calls into question the complexity of the text that kids are reading. And that's maybe a small change for some people is to think like, am I putting kids in books or steering them towards selecting books that are on the easy side where they're not going to be encountering any new words? And am I cutting off their opportunity to learn new vocabulary words? I think possibly, right? Um, So that could be a small change that makes a, a big difference too. Well, Macy and Rosie and Leah, thank you so much for joining me for this Uh, post-interview discussion. I really appreciate your insights and hearing what you're excited to try. Thank you, Jen. Bye. And thank you for listening. Please support the To The Classroom podcast by sharing, subscribing, or leaving a review on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Learn more about me and my work at my website, www.jenniferceravallo.com.